to IEP Radio, a show dedicated to the education of all things indoor environmental quality related. And now here's your host, Michael Schrantz. Hello, everybody, and welcome to IEP Radio. This is episode 16. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with uh, Brandon LaGreca, uh, who has a real strong background in actually acupuncture and oriental medicine. However, the topic today is on EMF, and he has an incredible story. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of that right now. In 2005, um, he was a graduate of the Oregon College of Oriental Medicine, a licensed acupuncturist in the state of Wisconsin, and nationally certified in the practice of oriental medicine. Uh, having been exposed to acupuncture at a young age, Brandon began his formal study of traditional Chinese medicine through the practice of Qigong uh, at the age 13. After the completion of his master's degree in acupuncture and oriental medicine, he continued his education with postgraduate clinical work in China. In 2015, Brandon was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He achieved full remission eight months later by following an integrative medicine protocol that included immunotherapy without the use of chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. Brandon created his Empowered Patient blog to share his experience growing stronger through and beyond cancer. He now lectures and writes extensively on holistic cancer therapies and is a columnist of for acupuncture today. He is the author of Cancer and EMF Radiation, How to Protect Yourself from the Silent Carcinogen of Electropollution, uh, which we will be discussing today on our show. As the founder and director of East Troy Acupuncture, an integrative medical clinic serving Southeast Wisconsin, Brandon specializes in whole food, nutrition, ancestral health, and environmental medicine. With a strong commitment to holistic health, Brandon is a thought leader in the synthesis of traditional and functional medicine and has authored numerous articles on the subject. When not researching and practicing holistic medicine, he studies the healing power of traditional diets and is a chapter leader for the Weston A. Price Foundation. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. We really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I thought I'd, I'd just start off by saying uh, what a wonderful and interesting background that you have, certainly a special journey uh, as your path and career has taken you abroad and across uh, many disciplines of exposures, including EMF. Uh, it's clear to me, at least, uh, from what I was able to find out about you, that you have an extensive knowledge and background in acupuncture and oriental medicine, which naturally made me as a layman wonder, how did such a background, a career, uh, get you involved in the world of EMF? Yeah, so I was moseying along as a clinician for many years. And uh, then in 2015, I uh, received a cancer diagnosis. And specifically because the diagnosis I received was for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and my understanding of the causes of lymphoma, that really threw me into the world of environmental medicine. And so I researched quite a bit in that realm, and I have a high respect for, um, for IEPs like yourself, um, because to me, that is one of the main metaphors of cancer, is how we're relating to our environment and how our bodies are mirroring the toxicity in the environment. So naturally, that led to me wanting to research, understand a number of different environmental exposures that can dovetail into a cancer diagnosis. So as I'm thinking about, okay, here I am as a clinician, I had a blog on the side, I wanted to start writing more for this community, my community, cancer patients. And then I thought, well, the first thing I think I should tackle, which I believe is the elephant in the room, is this EMF story. 
um, particularly because there really isn't a whole lot out there. I mean, if you just go on Amazon now, you can find some scattered books just generically written about EMF. But um, I was actually surprised to learn when I published my book that if you just type in cancer and EMF, I'm the first hit. Um, so no one uh, has really dove into specifically the research, you know, the literature about cancer and EMF. So that really began my journey. So I'd, we'll start here. No, that's great. Um, and, and it's funny, I, this book you've, you've written here, I'll, I'll, we're going to be talking about that indirectly and directly a few times, cancer and EMF yeah. radiation. There it is on the screen for those of you that are watching, how to protect yourself from the silent carcinogen of electropollution. I mean, that's a mouthful. And I got to tell you right off the bat, um, you know, I got a copy of this book and it's amazing, it, not just because of the, um, the information, but how well Brandon writes it. It's one of those things where it helps connect the dots. In the world that we operate in, it's easy to get lost in the minutiae. And um, I, I don't want to um, give away everything right away. So we'll, we'll, we'll be bringing up the book. Um, available on Amazon. I'm going to provide a link for that for everybody. Um, totally impressed of, like I said, how you were able to connect the dots. Uh, the, the, the fundamentals behind EMF and what is it I think are important to our audience. There are people of all backgrounds and, and I will include myself in this. I mean, I know enough to probably get myself into trouble uh, regarding EMFs and potential sources. Um, but perhaps you can share with the audience a little bit about EMFs, um, what the concerns are, what they are, and even maybe even somewhere along the way, you mentioned in your book, which I thought was awesome, um, this thing about native and non-native EMF. Mm -hmm. I thought that was such a striking piece that you started your book off with. Mm -hmm. Sure. So we can go back to high school physics. And by that, I mean all phenomena is categorized along what's called the electromagnetic spectrum. Visible light, which allows us to see, see color, is if you put that right in the middle. On one end of the spectrum, we have what's called ionizing radiation. And those are things like x-rays and gamma rays. And uh, some of those uh, we are protected from, from our, our atmosphere, like gamma rays. And others like x-rays, the medical field has learned how to leverage small doses of these kinds of uh, forms of radiation for diagnosis, in this case, for a fracture, to diagnose a fracture. Um, what's clear about looking at ionizing radiation is that un unequivocally, um, this exposure to excessive amounts of this radiation is carcinogenic. Now on the other end of that spectrum, where we talked about visible light, is what's called um, non-ionizing radiation. And it was given that name because for the longest time it was considered that non-ionizing radiation from direct exposure to it did not cause cancer, did not cause DNA break. So those are things like radio waves, microwaves, and many of those things, which we'll talk about in a moment, are classified as non-native, which means they're artificial. We have created them. You know, radio waves didn't exist on the planet in our evolution. However, it's not like we live in a completely EMF-free environment. So our atmosphere itself, where we live, is we're surrounded by a magnetic field. So the Earth itself has a magnetic field that, depending on where you measure it, is 0.25 to, I believe, 0.65 Gauss. And Gauss is, a, is the uh, unit with which to measure magnetic fields. So we've all evolved within a magnetic field. The distinction I'll make for you, Mike, is that um, the magnetic field that we have been exposed to is DC, which means it's direct current. 
the magnetic field, for instance, that's generated from the electrical service to our house, from power lines to the devices that we're using all around us are AC, they're alternating current. Again, another artificial or non-native electromagnetic field. Understood. So, so then what about that? I mean, is that the only type you mentioned magnetic fields sure. and exposure, but there's other EMFs. I hear people talking about um, microwave radiation and, and yeah. Wi-Fi comes to mind and there's other things, dirty electricity, um, even electric fields. Uh, can you kind of uh, explain yeah. to our audience what that's all about? Sure. So now that we're in this world of uh, non-native non electromagnetic fields, I'm going to break that down into three broad categories. So one of them is called ELF, or which stands for elect, uh, extremely low frequency electromagnetic fields. So this is the 60 hertz uh, field, again, that uh, powers our homes and our, and our offices. This is the 120 volts that's coming in through all of our outlets, again, powering everything. Um, there is also radio frequency waves. Now these are smaller waves, higher frequency, um, radio frequency is synonymous with microwave. I actually like the term microwave better than radio frequency because radio frequency has this kind of quaint notion, oh, I'm listening to the radio, it's safe, it's been around for whatever, 100 years. Yeah. But the reality is, you know, I like the, the term microwave a little bit better because, you know, when we're, when we're putting a cell phone to our head, I mean, essentially what we're doing is strapping a small microwave oven to our head. Now it's not nearly as strong, but is emitting microwave radiation. So microwave radiation is in the ballpark of about 300 megahertz. Now, as we get into 5G, and we can talk about this, the nuance there, up into 300 gigahertz. So that's the second category. The third category is what's called um, dirty electricity, or at least that's how many people have heard of it. But the proper term for that is transient voltage. And what transient voltage is, is it's a kind of electrical noise that exists on power lines and in the, the wiring of, of buildings. Think of it as these uh, little vo voltage spikes that occur on clean electricity. If clean electricity is 50 to 60 hertz going into our house, these volts that happen into the kilohertz range are called dirty electricity. And, and um, three of those, those three together are the non-native fields that we, that we discuss. When we look at those different uh, uh, types of EMF, mm -hmm. um, is it easy to say that one is worse than the other or is it complicated, meaning an exposure concern? Yeah, um, I wish I had the answer to that question. <laughs> it's an excellent one. I mean, I can give you my sense. Uh, so first of all, the people that have been in this field, and I'm not an EMF inspector or mitigator. And, and I consulted with, with several of them, uh, my research for this book. And a lot of them are kind of old school. They've been doing this for 20, 30 years. They seem to think just a, based upon the history of our exposure that magnetic fields themselves are probably the worst. Mm, However, the contrast to that is now, whereas we're entering into this, you know, this time period where we've got all our devices talking to each other, you know, the internet of things, you could you could turn your thermostat up or down from work before you even get home. That's right. All of this nonsense. And all these things are tied together through Wi-Fi, through microwave radiation, through cell phones, cell towers, all that. So 
you know, this, this uptick of all this microwave radiation in some ways probably has me the most concerned because it's extremely hard to avoid. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. If you live in a major metropolitan area, good luck avoiding a Wi-Fi signal at this point. I mean, I'm, I'm here in rural Wisconsin. I'm across the street here from I can see cows from my place, but that's not the average person. I mean, we, the average person is going to be bombarded with microwave radiation day in and day out. Oh, high density locations. I think of big cities like San Francisco. I think I even saw them start to put up uh, what looks like 5G um, networks or, or something like that. It was in process. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there's evidence to support that all of them, to some extent, can cause harm to the body. You know, is any one of them, again, more carcinogenic to the other? I, all that's going to depend on context. So right. I'd love to give you an answer, but I just, we don't know yet. I think. But that's, that's, what, that's what I love about you and how you even wrote the book is that you're fair. You, you don't try to oversell uh, something. You certainly don't try to undersell it. You try to bring light to the subject. And, and, and so maybe, maybe that's how we can transition here is there's inherently concerns about EMF exposure and breaking it down to a layman level. To me, it's yeah. just basically saying these are not um, native background levels. I mean, and I look at it, it's kind of funny, you know, depending on what spiritual belief you're in or whatnot, you can argue that we have evolved as a species. And in the last hundred years, we've gone through two industrial revolutions, you know, some world wars and, and, and the, and that transition includes this uh, constant bombardment of EMF exposures of different levels and types that there's a, there is a concern that prolonged exposure to it um, can cause adverse health issues um, varying from any level of degree. And maybe that's what the audience needs to know about is why, why is there concern? I mean, somebody one day drew on a bar napkin that I think there's an exposure concern. And, 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 and then research was done. And one of the problems I have is that when you talk to different professionals, maybe it's the old schools, I'm not sure, but uh, meaning that's where they came from. They're, they don't have a lot. They just kind of know holistically, yeah. it doesn't make sense to stand next to a microwave uh, or something like that. Sure. You, you have over 60 references in your book, the book we're looking at right now, mm-hmm. um, which I'm arguing probably predominantly support the idea of an exposure concern. Um, but I believe it's actually uh, chapter eight titled Connecting the Research Dots, where you focus on a particular study, and it may be a group of studies um, that was released in, and if I butcher this, let me know, November 2018 by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the National Toxicology Program. Um, you really focus on that in that chapter. It's almost like if there was ever a bit of evidence to support the idea that EMF exposures are real, this release of this document is it. Can you kind of dive into what that document was all about? Sure. So I talk about four corroborating lines of evidence. And I think each one of them builds on each other. So I start with epidemiology, which is a a nice form of evidence, but it's not perfect. I mean, clearly, it's always always a retrospective. You're always trying to predict what's going to happen. And it's not the best form of evidence. Prospective would be better, of course. And then we get into, okay, do we see actual experimental studies that suggest a a carcinogenic effect from EMF? And then look at what the possible mechanisms might be. And then as those areas of research build on each other, then we get into animal studies. And that's what this particular, this webpage that you have up now from the National Toxicology Program, they really looked at. So this is uh, our government and our tax dollars at work 
And they, they really had two major arms of this study. Um, one was looking at 1900 megahertz um, with mice. And they found equivocal evidence of um, carcinogenic effect from exposure to EMF. And the definitions for the audience uh, there, yeah, you can right see here. It. Yeah, okay. So good. equivocal evidence, and I'm just going to read it since you have it up. Equivocal evidence of carcinogenic activity is demonstrated by studies that are interpreted as showing a marginal increase of neoplasms that may be chemically related. Okay, so neoplasms means, you know, cancer, cancer site. So that was the mice study. However, they looked at 900 megahertz as a frequency with rats and over the course of two years. So the difference between the one arm with the mice and the one arm with the rats, is for the case of the rats, they did it much longer and they did it at 900 megahertz. Now, 900 megahertz is something that's been around for, the, the original cordless phones were about 900 megahertz. So we're not even talking about like Bluetooth, for instance, which is I think around 2.45 gigahertz or, or heavens forbid, you know, the 5G stuff, which is even higher frequency than that. So we're just looking at 900 megahertz rats for two years. 2016, they had eight cohorts. Of those eight cohorts, five of them showed equivocal evidence of carcinogenic activity. Two showed some evidence. Which is above, which is more if you're reading which is the, more. the screen. Yeah, yeah which is more and then one showed no evidence. That was in 2016. This data was then, had then undergone peer review. And the results were then reanalyzed, republished 2018 looking at this. From those original eight cohorts, five of them were moved into the category of clear evidence of carcinogenic activity. Good grief. So clear evidence at, from peer reviewed yeah. professionals putting Absolutely. their mark on it. And what they found was evidence of um, particularly glioma, which is a brain cancer, and um, cancers of the adrenal glands in the heart, which mirrors you know, very closely what we see in terms of the epidemiological studies in human beings. I mean, so most, to be clear, most of the research really does revolve around cell phones because that's where the interest is. Um, and that's where the money is in terms of the telecommunication studies. And what we, what we see, just even looking at the, the human epidemiological studies, is when you get beyond 10 years is where you start seeing increases in things like glioma, acoustic neuroma, salivary gland tumor. So again, you know, we can't do these studies on humans. No institutional review board would, would allow that. So we have to be able to as I explained in the book, connect the dots. We have these different kinds of evidence that if we piece them together, we can hopefully uh, infer an effect, at least enough from my opinion to say we need to um, apply the precautionary principle and maybe change our relationship with technology. Right, and there's a couple things. Number one, um, you know, that's why we're talking about chronic exposure. Um, you know, no one's saying Correct. that this is a one and done. The argument is that it's, this is, this is the same exact issue I deal with in, in my industry, uh, which it does now include EMF, but uh, you know, we think mold, bacteria, is yeah. that no one really has a problem when there's something obvious going on. If uh, Heaven forbid you get in a car accident, you break your leg. No one ever argues, oh, wow, that's a broken leg. You should probably fix that. That's bad for you. But if it's something that takes years, decades to accumulate, it's really hard to pinpoint and it's not convenient, uh, especially in the industry that we're talking about. I mean, what, what are we supposed to do? Knock on 
the mobile phone industry and say, guess what? No more cell phones. I mean, that would like probably yeah. destabilize our economy. <laughs> so there's obviously strong interests to prevent that. Another, another thing though that I thought you mentioned, and forgive me for not remembering the exact chapter, but it was this whole concept of one of the concerns you had with all this excellent data is the fear that companies will mis misrepresent it. Uh, the example I think you gave was that if it's not if it turns out that this research doesn't suggest that it is a direct reason for getting cancer in the brain or something like that, that clearly there's evidence that shows that it debilitates your immune system, which can be a yeah. secondary cause. And maybe you can talk a little bit more to that. Sure. You know, and to that point and, and to what you, you've just um, discussed, you know, I, on other podcasts recently that I've been interviewed, I think a common question I get asked simply because I wrote this book is, do you feel like your particular cancer was directly linked to uh, EMF? I mean, it's a logical conclusion for someone to, you know, think I have a bone to pick. Um, you know, my answer to that is, well, one, I don't know. And two, I actually don't really think it was the lion's share of what caused my particular kind of cancer, you know? And so it's easy to think that, you know, because we're all being exposed to it, that, you know, uh, like a one trick pony that, I'm going to overfocus on this one thing and say this is going to be the cause of all the harm to sure. humanity. I mean, clearly, and you know this from your work uh, in your profession, you know, we're exposed to a lot of different carcinogens from a lot of different places. Yep. And so um, I think just to be fair, what I want to see come out of this is, you know, if I had a main thesis that I wanted to communicate uh, with this book is to really change the conversation. If I can at least make a compelling argument to you and any reader that, electromagnetic fields do represent a significant human carcinogen, then the conversation changes. It changes right. and the question changes. Now the question is, how significant is it? Yeah. So now we have to, you know, think of it in a little bit in, in terms of, um, you know, how significant is it in the context of everything else we're exposed to? I mean, you know, even with just the kind of testing you do for mold, I mean, good luck, you know, getting into remission from cancer if you're living in a, a moldy building. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the problem is, is that there's, you know, I'm not trying to turn this into conspiracy theory. That's not the yeah. angle here. And, and I'm also not trying to be, I'm, you've heard the expressions too. You, everybody who ever wants to take a chance and bring things to the headlines uh, some, is oftentimes accused or judged. It, this is not a tinfoil hat conversation. Right. This is about a chronic long-term exposure that decades ago when someone got cancer, maybe they never knew it, but, um, you know, maybe it was because of an ongoing exposure because, I mean, even in your book, you mentioned the concept of smoking. I mean, if you rewind the clocks back enough, smoking was promoted by the medical community as a positive <laughs> thing. And now it's like, you're, it's almost insulting if you lit up a cigarette right now, we're not even in the same room. It's, um, it's an analogous situation to be sure. I mean, I, you know, the thing with smoking and, and the reason why I, I, I kind of uh, try to convey it in this way is, you know, we're on the other side of that research curve. You know, initially we were trying to look for that effect, but it took a couple decades of epidemiological research to, to show that, I mean, and, and, and it's self-evident now, no one would argue that smoking is not a, a major underlying cause of lung cancer. But that's again, only because we're on the other side of that research curve, we can have that kind of mature consensus. Now, when I was in China, you know, going back uh, 15 years ago now, there were still doctors smoking in the hospital, <laughs> which is crazy to us. But you know, to them, they're on that other side of that curve. I mean, uh -huh. they 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 uh, have not had that kind of mature consensus come to them in terms of the research. So, 
I think this is, it, it, it's possible that there can be an analogous thing going, with, going on with EMF where it's everywhere. I mean, it, it, the proliferation occurred well before that we had good adequate research. I mean, at this point, all the research that I have on microwave radiation in the book deals with 3G and 4G. I didn't even have 5G research to look at to include in the book to see because it hasn't been done yet. So yeah. here we are now exposing ourselves to an even higher frequency um, without really understanding the long-term effects. And um, you've seen this with your patients, not to interrupt you, right? I mean, yeah, even yeah. with some of your people, you've, you, you've talked about seeing sure. the effects of exposure to EMF. Yeah. You know, again, I, I'm in a small town and I have a practice that kind of treats a little bit of everything. So I don't really specialize in any one thing. But yes, I've had patients come in who... Um, have what they claim is EHS or electrohypersensitivity syndrome. And that has a lot of symptoms associated with it. Things like ear ringing, headaches, um, sleep issues, insomnia in particular. And these patients, and I take them at their word because I'm a clinician and I'm here to be, you know, to offer compassionate care is their whatever that cell phone tower went up or that digital meter went on their house and they've had problems ever since. So I take them at that word and I try to treat them for what gets presented to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, these, these patients are exist. They're not going away. I mean, we're going to see them increasing amounts just like you see patients or you work with clients that um, are in moldy buildings and have a whole, um, plethora of symptoms that arise from that. Yeah, and trying to find the low-hanging fruit, the other issue I deal with from a challenging perspective, and maybe this is um, uh, another great transition piece for us. Um, I know in previous conversations you and I had, our focus today was going to be more on the medical and, and the physics behind EMF, like what yeah. is it, which we've, I think you've done succinctly a great, great job. And this book, uh, which is very affordable, is, is so available. So I d definitely recommend you. I read through it three times and I feel like I learned something new each time. Um, but the, the transition piece for me is this, is now we get into the issue of what to do about it. And, yeah. and, and maybe we never have enough time to, to get into all of the examples. And let me be the guy that sets up your own disclaimers is that, you know, brand, every situation is unique and, and, and one, one solution, quote unquote, may not be the right one for the next person. That's what I deal with personally. When I'm working with clients, whether virtually or boots on the ground, it's not that there is a, a concern. It, usually it's the cost to uh, eliminate or, or, or protect yourself from that concern. It's a money issue. If it costs 10 cents to fix everything in your home, we wouldn't be having this conversation. In fact, you probably wouldn't have a book. Um, you know what yeah. I mean? It's, it's relative. So maybe, maybe what the question here is with the, the concern, I'm sure some of the audience has concerns is well, what do I do about this? I mean, yeah. whether the person lives in Podunk, Montana, or they live in some high density city, uh, is there a way that they can assess their environment? And if so, how do they go about yeah. doing that in your opinion? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, obviously the, my, the primary audience for my book is my community cancer patients, but the second audience are people like you, people who are interested in environmental medicine and um, people who have, are working with clients and may have concerns about EMF. So the first bit of advice I would offer, and, and I have no problem getting into a lot of the, um, the mitigation solutions, um, is to test, okay? This is something that even on an individual level, but certainly a, a practitioner like yourself could spend a few hundred dollars, get some really good meters, let's say not top of the line, not the worst, but some decent meters. Which I think um, you mentioned in the book, like Trifield is one of them. Yeah, yeah. so 
you know, I have, I have, I've got an old trifield meter here. I'll show you what mine looks like. This is the one that I had before the digital one came yeah, out. Yeah, right. But a, a basic trifield meter like this will cover that uh, category of ELF, extremely low frequency EMF. So that's AC magnetic, AC electric. Again, that's measuring, for instance, this lamp that's by my bedside. I can turn this on, get close to that lamp and see at what distance does the field drop off so I can keep that lamp far enough away from my head as one I example. See. You know, um, the second would be uh, a microwave meter. Now, Charles Keene, who is the, the professional EMF specter, inspector who wrote the afterword uh, for the book, he has some meter recommendations in there. He recommends one meter, I have a different one. I've heard Dr. Joe Mercola talk about a third one. There's a lot of good microwave meters out there. and um, but for starters, all you'd really need is a basic RF meter that you can walk around your house and look for signals. If you're looking for how potent is that cell phone tower off in the distance, that's a different kind of RF meter. But certainly, there are many good RF meters out there that you can just walk around your house, get measurements and see if there is any exposure there. And the third kind of meter is an EMI meter, which stands for electromagnetic interference. And this is a meter that you would plug right into an outlet. And um, the meter that I have like this, you just plug in and it gives you a number. And that number uh, translates in millivolts is the amount of that electrical noise that we talked about prior, dirty electricity that exists on that particular circuit in your home or office, so to speak. So I think an easy place to start is to start uh, kind of playing around with it. I, you know, I've had a lot of readers contact me. What about this? What about this? I don't have answers. You know, I had one reader in Japan said, well, what about trains? I have no idea. We don't really ride on trains here in the U.S., but, you know, he was curious about exposure in a lot of, I think, the bullet trains, which likely create a magnetic field. And I just had to tell him, I don't know, buy a meter and go check it out for yourself. Let's start building a database of, uh, of information here. So, you know, if we, if we can at least identify the problem, and this is an easy problem to identify. I mean, you don't need, uh, it doesn't have the kind of controversy, like for instance, that maybe mold testing or formaldehyde testing would have. This is something, this is physics. You get a meter that's of good quality and you'll know without a shadow of a doubt what you're being exposed to. Does your book mention um, guidelines of um, levels that you want to achieve? You know, that lamp example you gave, it's two feet away, it's producing this result. If I move it three feet away, it's this result. That's in a guideline of acceptability. Yeah, within the different chapters of the book, I talk about, you know, the basics, for instance, within just the AC magnetic field, you want to stay below three milligauss, even one milligauss is preferable for right. something like dirty electricity, you want to be below 75 millivolts, you know, and a lot of that will also depend on who you talk to. There's no hard and fast rules about this. Different countries, different inspectors um, will have different numbers that they like. If you're working with a population of people that might be more sensitive, you want those numbers to be lower. Certainly with a cancer patient, I'm gonna want them to be lower. So it's not like we have these firm guidelines in the US or anywhere that can say this, this, and this. Um, right. So what we, we have is like a combination of experience over time, working with some of these things, uh, and feedback from clients. Sure, um, is it too broad to ask um, fixes? I mean. Yeah. If it's a cell phone tower, you don't ask the cell phone tower to move, typically. Nope. Yeah, very hard to deal with that. There, there is a way, if you live close to a cell phone tower, to you can use special paint on the inside of your house and window treatments that can block EMF. It comes at great expense. I mean, it's possible, but it's, 
it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, so that's probably one of the trickiest. I think where, where I think people should focus is on what's in their house, what's in their actual environment, which they have the most control over. Right. So that can be as simple as shutting off your Wi-Fi router. I mean, if you are at least um, so tied to your Wi-Fi router that you, you're not willing to do without it, I mean, I would at least make the argument to you that you should be shutting it off at night when you are, uh, while you're sleeping, and particularly because we didn't get a chance to, to dive into the details of this. Yeah. There is evidence in terms of a mechanism that electromagnetic fields suppress melatonin. Yeah. So this would explain in part why we see some patients that um, have insomnia issues, let's say if they're close to a meter, you know, on the outside wall of their bedroom, for instance. Uh, but if nothing else, yes, you could shut off your Wi-Fi router. Now, I chose to, we just bought a house recently, moved in. And before we did, I chose to wire this place to the gills. So I've got Cat6 cable running everywhere into every major room. Um, so even as we speak now, I have my laptop plugged into an Ethernet cable. It's faster, it's more reliable, I'm not getting blasted, you know. Everyone thinks that the Wi-Fi router if you walk around with your meter, if it's 15 feet away, you're safe. Well, yeah, you could still pick up the signal, but that's not the problem. The problem is actually the device in your hand or the one that you're working in, <laughs> because that's taking that signal and then it's communicating back to it. So even if that Wi-Fi router is 20 feet away, if my laptop is operating on Wi-Fi and I'm working on it, that's where my meter gets spiked, right yeah. in the device that you're working with. So it's pretty hard to avoid exposure to Wi-Fi if you have it in your house. So that's probably one of the, the recommendations. In terms of the whole dirty electricity thing, I find one of the biggest offenders there by a long shot is uh, compact fluorescent bulbs. Interesting, okay. Yeah, dimmer switches are up there too, but CFLs, fluorescence in general, you know, the ballast of that bulb um, converts basically between AC and DC and that conversion anytime you restrict voltage anytime you convert it anyway there's that potential for this um, high voltage electrical noise to be generated so you know old-fashioned incandescents are the best for lighting but they're also very inefficient I chose to go um, with all LEDs I've talked with some EMF inspectors about this and you know, the, the EMF coming off from this next generation of really good LEDs is minimal. So they're not perfect. There are other issues with LED in terms of light, but um, for, for a lot of areas that, you know, you need light to be on for a, for a, for a long time, they seem to be okay. Ren, your book gets into a lot of uh, this stuff, certainly more detail. And I know it's always tough, as I mentioned earlier, the minutia, it's so complicated. And, and I think I, uh, in, in a way to relate to you, again, is that that's the problem with the world that I operate in is that there's no hard minimums. Um, people, when they, yeah. we, we pick on mold, but really we deal with chemicals and bacteria and other, you know, other sorts of microbials. But when we're picking on mold, for example, and imagine EMFs the same way, it's not like we have a cheat sheet that says, you know, um, 14 spores of this mold is okay, but 15 and your arm's going to fall off. I mean, there's this soft curve and you do the best that you can and you hope that um, you understand that you've been around this stuff and exposed to it a lot longer than maybe you wish, that your body is resilient, but you're taking care of your body, you're getting good night's sleep, you're not interrupting the melatonin production, which is key uh, in our lives. Um, and, and I mean, I, even myself, I've made the low-hanging fruit changes. The, the computer I'm working on is hardwired. Um, quarter of my house is hardwired. Um, I have an old house that has no real room. Uh, it's, a, it's an expensive deal. We turn off the Wi-Fi router at night and there's a Faraday cage over it. Um, for what it's worth. 
Um, yes. and, and there, but you know, we have a cell phone tower that's less than a quarter mile away from us at a fire station. And we've looked at uh, paints and nets and it, it, you just, you, you, it, like you said, I think that's spot on. You focus on your sanctuary inside the home and then you see those net results and you just track them. And that's the struggle that we're working with right now, which Brandon's example earlier about the person asking about the bullet train, you know, he speaks truth. We don't have a study uh, that's 10, 20, 30 years long that shows, well, according to these exposures, you're okay in a bullet train. You know, it's all new. And so if you're hearing this and you're feeling a little bit lost and alone, it's not for a lack of good reason. It's because we are truly learning and people like Brandon and our others that are speaking the truth are, are trying to constantly update what the current guideline is. Today, it's this recommendation. Tomorrow, it may be that. And when we have responsible evidence to make those claims, we will. Um, Brandon, you mentioned earlier, people reach out to you. Um, if our audience would like to reach out to you, I guess the first question is, is can they? The second is how? Um, through the website they have on the screen, which is just brandonlegreca.com. Uh, contact wanna, page, I assume. Yep, there's a contact page there. Um, or if you just want to jump right to my blog where I've written a lot of articles, more about cancer, but a lot of them have to do with environmental medicine. You can just get there directly by going to poweredpatientblog.com. Um, this is a, such an excellent uh, website that you just put up. We'll make sure that we put a link uh, on the podcast for that. Um, any, any closing uh, comments you'd like to add before we end today's uh, podcast? Yeah, I think the one thing that we didn't discuss, um, that it's the massive elephant in the room, is obviously just cell phone use. I mean, that's the one that I think I'm going to draw the, the strongest uh, analogy to, to cigarette smoking, because here's this thing that we're putting up to our heads, in some cases, for some people, multiple hours per day. And I think that's where the research is strongest. If you look at the epidemiological research beyond 10 years, that's where you really start to see increases in um, ipsilateral glioma, which means it's, you know, cancer on the same side that you hold your cell phone on most predominantly. Interesting. You know, and, and then it's only going to take time, 20, 30 years worth of epidemiological research. We're probably going to see that uh, link become clear and clear. So my gut instinct on that is don't put your cell phone up to your head. I mean, there's a lot of really good uh, research now that suggests the mechanism of how that's causing DNA damage. I mean, Dr. George Carlo who was funded by the telecommunications industry himself, was able to show as early as 1998 that a SAR rating, which people, they know their phone has a SAR rating associated, but a SAR of even just one watt per kilogram was causing DNA breaks, you know? So it's this kind of early research that didn't get a whole lot of press. No, it did not. <laughs> <laughs> that to me, again, really suggests, um, you know, from an ancestral health perspective that we need to take more precautions with them. So obviously, you know, I have a cell phone too. I use it. I'm not, I'm not um, a Luddite with, with all this. I mean, I use, I interact with technology daily. I think we just need to, to reevaluate how we interact with that technology. And so for me, yes, I have a cell phone. I don't, ever use it right up against my head i'll use it on speakerphone or i'll plug in my earbuds which i've measured it's very minimal coming from earbuds um, when they're plugged in and so even something as simple as that you know and then turn it off don't have it on in your bedroom at night you know, yeah you that's great advice and as much as on that i'm on the phone I, i'm glad to hear that you're doing the same type of thing because uh it don't I, I don't even know if it's psychological at that point but just the idea of knowing it's right there that uh, just doesn't seem like a smart thing to do. Fortunately, we have ways to get around that, which does not include Bluetooth headphones, I might add. 
Yeah. And then, and then just uh, build resilience in the body. I mean, to me, I think the whole story is environmental medicine. This isn't about just EMF. You know, you, you, we need all of us together communicating and to really flesh out this story, specifically with cancer, but for a number of different, you know, illnesses and medical conditions. I mean, we have to really to take this ancestral perspective and say, well, what are all the ways that we are being exposed and exposed to things that weaken us? I mean, that's the most simple way we can think about cancer, any disease. What are the things that make us stronger? What are the things that make us weaker? Does sleeping seven, eight hours a night eating a good diet make us stronger? Yes. Does being exposed to tons of EMF around us, smoking cigarettes, not exercising, weaken us? Of course. You know, if we just even that binary principle, what makes us stronger makes, makes us weaker, we can really have, you know, this honest conversation about what the human frame needs to, to live healthily and happily. Absolutely. Um, you can find out more about Brandon's book by visiting Amazon.com. Uh, I have it right up here on the screen. And like I mentioned earlier, um, we'll provide a link to, I definitely recommend it. Um, Brandon, I want to thank you uh, for taking the time uh, out of your day to speak with us, uh, educating myself and our audience on a very important topic, which is EMF exposure. I know that we um, could talk for hours about it, but this really gives people a taste of, of, of kind of the science and knowing that that research is there. His book is a, an excellent resource that kind of compiles a lot of it for you so that you don't feel like you get lost in the minutia when you do your Google searching. And also as well as being an ambassador uh, for the truth and then putting in the hard work that you have to support your concerns and conclusions. Um, we look forward to working with you in your future and maybe we can have you on the show again. Sounds good, Mike. It was a pleasure talking with you. The content of this show is for informational purposes and represents the sole opinion of the host and its interviewees only. Any reliance on the information provided in this show is done at your own risk. Additional opinions and or research may change our current view of the topics spoken in this show. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our own field experience, independent literature, or studies that support the topics discussed. This information should not be used to make conclusive decisions regarding your health or exposure. Ultimately, all questions and or concerns regarding your health should be addressed by a qualified physician. Additional exposure concerns and or questions pertaining to the health of your home or building should be addressed by qualified and on-site professionals. Any and all products and services discussed in this show should not be construed as a recommendation, endorsement, or guarantee that their use is appropriate for your situation. In short, we hope this information is of value to you, but please do not act upon it without actual and individual consultation and guidance by professionals who have taken the time and appropriate collection of data to assess your unique situation.